0: Heads up, these are adults having adult conversations, so there could be adult content. This episode is with Tony Brown, one of the biggest producers in Nashville, one of the biggest producers in the world. He's had so many number one songs that he's been a part of producing, over 100, and he's had over 100 million album sales. He's also just the sweetest person ever. He played piano with Elvis. He played piano with Emmylou Harris. He ran MCA Records. He's just incredible. He's won a Grammy. So y'all get excited. Here's Tony Brown. Tony Brown.
1: Caroline.
0: I am here with the man, the myth, the legend, Tony Brown.
1: Oh, you're so sweet. I'm going to make you my manager.
0: (laughs) I don't know if I'm good at managing anything, but I am good at recognizing talent, which is you. You scream talent.
1: Well, thank you so much. You know, my life has been so much, so blessed, more than I would have ever dreamed. And I thought I was going to be a musician and it turned out otherwise. I ended up being a record executive and a producer,
0: like a huge record executive. What's
1: sort of like what you're going through right now? You know, you you're like kind of a singer, personality, all this songwriter. So I'm I'm really
0: um, you're very you're very I'm really
1: excited about what you're doing right now. This is oh, so good.
0: Thanks, Tony. Okay, so I want to start with that because you grew up like you have a favorite picture of mine of you and your brothers. Like y'all are all like running around barefoot
1: you mean in front of that old car in
0: front of an old car because you grew up from humble beginnings right
1: poverty below poverty you know we didn't even have in inside restrooms or anything really we're really poor but the thing about it is I didn't know that we were so poor and I had aunts and uncles who I thought were rich and now as I've gotten older and became rich myself.
0: <laughs> Which is that? Do you prefer poor or rich?
1: I prefer rich. <laughs> well, I'm not rich. I have money. I don't. I'm not rich. Well. Bill Gates is rich. But anyway,
0: all <laughs> perspective.
1: You know, uh, I realized that all my aunts and uncles were just middle class because they had like new cars, like Chevrolets and Osmobiles, and I we had like old old cars, like that barely ran. And when one stopped, we'd put it in the backyard on blocks and use it for parts. Oh and Yes. I mean, I was raised in a really poor environment, but I kind of, I'm glad I was because it, it makes me appreciate uh, all the things I've been given uh, and made me work really hard.
0: Did you grow up in a musical family or are uh, you the only musical no,
1: one? No, I'm the only one that really <clears throat> got into the business. My brothers are, are ministers.
0: Oh, so you grew up really religious.
1: I mean, my dad was an evangelist. I mean, a religious right-wing fanatic. And I was only allowed to listen to gospel music for years. So
0: were they, did they think you were sinning when you chose this path of music?
1: Well, my father passed away before I got the job with Elvis, or he would have been really <laughs> upset with me. <laughs> oh, my mom actually loved it. I'm sure she loved Elvis. <laughs> she, came, she came to see the show in Greensboro, and I have actually a CD someone sent me. I went to an Elvis fan club thing, and they said, you want the CD of When Elvis Mentioned Your Mom Was in the Audience in Greensboro, North Carolina. I said, Sure. So.
0: Did that make her life?
1: Oh, yeah, it made her life. She loved it.
0: So, your dad was an evangelist. What is that like growing up with that kind of man of the house?
1: Well, you know, when I was raised in the church, you know, most people now only think about evangelicals, Catholics, Jewish faith, and the Muslim faith, and Buddhist. I was raised in the Baptist church, but we were very hard-shell Baptists, so could only go to religious functions and stuff like that. And it it affected the way that I never never grew up knowing who Elvis was or the Beatles. And so when I finally got the job with Elvis, believe it or not, it was because I came from gospel music, because that's what he loved. Wow. And I have a book coming out in August. Which is called? Elvis straight to Jesus, and basically people (laughs) wonder how I got my job with Elvis, and I think they think I was a great session player or something, but that's not the reason. It's because I came from Southern Gospel Music, and I got the job through that.
0: So, okay, so how did you get into music? Where did you learn how to play piano? And then how did you become a bigwig in the gospel community so much that Elvis snatched you up? Well,
1: you know, as I, I played by ear, my brothers took music, and I was taking music as well, but I was always third in line at the lessons.
0: Three, you the youngest?
1: I was the youngest, yes. <laughs> and uh, I was playing by ear and not reading the music. I didn't know that till later on when they put me first for the next lesson, and I couldn't read anything. <laughs> so anyway, you know, eventually I got noticed by a guy named J.D. Sumner, okay. who was Elvis' hero. He was the lowest bass singer in the world.
0: Are you serious? Yes.
1: And wow. uh, he ended up touring with Elvis till the end. But uh, he hired me to come with the Stamps Quartet. And then I left the Stamps Quartet. Where did he see you? Well, I was playing at, you know, we would play shows. Like country artists have opening acts. Okay. Our family sometimes would be playing at a gospel singing where he was at. So and you he,
0: were in a family
1: band? Yeah, the Brown family, singers.
0: Was it you and your brothers and me And parents? My
1: brothers and sister and my dad, yeah.
0: So y'all are like the Partridge
1: family. Yeah, kind of. And you know, i I didn't really play I didn't really play uh, in public till I was thirteen, and I learned to play a song in the key of F. And when I finished, I was thirteen, but I looked about six. I was always really short for my age, and um, the crowd went crazy. So my first thought was, I need to learn two songs. <laughs> And so I right so I so eventually I just started playing and playing and, and I got pretty good. Not great, but I got pretty good. Uh and got the job with JD Sumner and then the Oak Ridge Boys in seventy two stole me away to play with them because they were like the hip new gospel group. You know, they wore cool suits and had long hair and so I joined them because they were cooler than the Stamps quartet. <laughs> and then uh I left that group when um, a friend of mine said Elvis was hiring three guys to sing gospel songs at his house because he loved to do that. And would I want to be? The, would I care to be the piano player? I said, sure.
0: Um, so it was kind of just like put in your lap.
1: Yeah. So I, so I become the piano player for this group called Voice, and our job is to go to Beverly Hills, Palm Springs, or Graceland, whenever Elvis. Is bored and wants to sing gospel music just for
0: fun. He just just for, for fun. fun. Yeah,
1: he had flash there, and we. So
0: you got paid to just sing for fun with Elvis. Yes, like it was not for like shows. It no, was no, no. His hobby.
1: and eventually, eventually.
0: Tony, that's crazy.
1: Elvis put this group voice on tour with him, so we opened the shows. It was a voice, then a comedian, and then the Sweet Inspirations, and then Elvis. So eventually, I was on tour with Elvis, and so after we would finish opening the show. I would sit behind Elvis's piano player, Glenn D. Hardin, during Elvis's show and watch him play, thinking, man, I could do this show.
0: So you felt like you were ready for it. Yeah,
1: so eventually, uh, Glenn D. Hardin told me he was leaving Elvis to go play with Amy Lou Harris, and it would interfere with the touring schedule. So I said, well, put my name in the hat, I can do this show. And I got the I got the gig with Elvis. I played with Elvis. till he how pa- many years? Three years. Well, I played with Elvis in the TCB band for a year and a half. i have been with Elvis at, with voice for a year and a half, so three years total. So uh, Elvis passes away.
0: So you were there in the middle. You were in his band when he passed away? Yes, yeah, so
1: I was at the airport waiting to go to the first show of the next tour. When they told us to go home, the tour had been called off, and they didn't even tell us why.
0: What, what I, was that like? I was
1: driving back to my house, and I, on the radio I hear that Elvis... Was found dead in his bathroom, and so that kind of blew my mind.
0: What uh, did you feel? Because it were was like, friends at well,
1: you know, it's like I, we weren't. I didn't say that I knew Elvis so good that we were buds, but I, mean, but your I, I knew him. Man, and you uh, <clears throat> know, I'd already spent the money I was going to make. I was living way beyond my means back in those days.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, why not?
1: And so uh, I went home, and then. Uh, I get a call from Amy Lou Harris's manager that Glenn D. Harden.
0: So Glenn was the one that played for Elvis and went to play anyway, for Emmy Lou, yeah,
1: right? So Ed Tickner called and said that Glenn D. was leaving Amy Lou to go play with John Denver. <laughs> so
0: you're like, well. And I'm available. so I, I went
1: out and tried out for the for her and got the gig, and that's where I met Vince Gill and Rodney Crowell, Roseanne Cash, uh, the Hot Band, which became the Cherry Bombs eventually. So it's like sliding doors, you know, you just, your life you, is sort of like you, it's taking advantage of opportunities in a serious kind of way, you know, not being a social climber, just being a person who wants to do better and then get a bigger job and a better job and do a good job.
0: And, well, and you had talents that you knew you needed well, to express. But yeah, but you know,
1: I wasn't, I wasn't like a a fantastic piano player, but I was, I never played in gigs that I couldn't do. I mean, I didn't play in a jazz band or anything like that. I actually played with artists that I could actually play their music well, you know? Yeah. And then eventually, Amy Lou got pregnant and got off the road and which turned into the hot band became the Cherry Bombs and we played for Roseanne Cash, we played for Rodney Crowell. So you were in the Cherry Bombs. Right. Which was the old hot band. And, uh, and then Rodney never could have a hit. Roseanne got pregnant so I, that job ended.
0: Isn't that crazy Rodney Crow couldn't have a hit with a voice like that?
1: I know he had hits he wrote.
0: Yeah, you know, but, but never but as like a real big Only artist. one
1: only one hit, kind of a small hit, um, called Ashes by Now. It's like Oh, kind I of loved a, that yeah, song. And uh,
0: I have so much so many questions I want to ask you. But I, I want to make sure I don't forget one part before we move to the next. Tell me what Elvis was like. Knowing him on a personal level.
1: He was you know, he was like uh, a simple person someone said you know he was really just a kind of a middle class came from poverty as i did
0: so you guys had Guy. like similar yeah, similar
1: upbringing and we both love gospel music you know
0: so y'all are very similar
1: right and so he was just basically a simple person who was elvis presley and believe it or not just like michael jackson and prince that comes with a lot of baggage, you know, you can't go out and do anything. Uh, So I think it was a burden for him. Uh, Just like all big stars like that, they can't be normal people. And believe it or not, being that famous is kind of cool and kind of hard at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that big. I mean, if you think about five people that in any country in the world that you would know, probably Elvis... Michael Jackson, Muhammad Ali, the Beatles, and John Wayne.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know? Maybe I mean, but there aren't many now. people that were that big, you know? Uh, but anyway, he was just a so really. It's
0: like you were playing for the biggest, one of the biggest stars on the planet.
1: Yeah, but you know, when I was playing with him, I wasn't into music. I was just into celebrity. So I was playing for a celebrity. Only after he passed away, and I got with Amy Lou Harris, she was all about music and the history of music and so you know she was part of that california uh west coast country thing with ronstadt and the eagles and the burrito brothers Mm -hmm. graham parsons and so i learned a lot about music with Amy lou then i got turned on to what i really liked
0: that's you because you've been dubbed what is it the forefather of americana Americana. (laughs) yeah
1: but you know it wasn't called that back then and because you
0: were an advocate for Americana music, because I, I'm jumping in. Well, I, I I was you on the ran board. MCA label. I, sure, for I was a long the president. Time, yes. And you signed a ton of Americana acts when that wasn't like the norm.
1: But I thought they were mainstream. Yeah, I didn't know. I thought Steve <laughs> Earle was the next Waylon. I thought Lyle Lovett was just cooler, than you know what? Yeah. And the Mavericks were just cool, They're cooler so than Alabama. Cool. And and so I got sort of dubbed as on the cutting edge, which. In the beginning, I never thought about that being like, I wasn't trying to be cutting edge. I just like stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. If I like something, someone said, how can you be a good A&R person? I said, you just got to believe that your taste is right. If they don't like it, they're just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, not literally, but you got to sort of think that you got to believe in your taste. You got to have like complete uh, belief that, your taste is really good, you know?
0: So another thing that I think is so interesting to me about you, because I am one of the very fortunate people who has gotten to develop a friendship with you over the years and Mm -hmm. you're just the sweetest heart ever. And so amazing. Like you're just, your talent's amazing. The way you think is amazing. And the way you follow the open doors is amazing because you told me that you moved to town to be a session player, so like I guess after Elvis and Emmy Lou, is that when you officially moved to Nashville? And you had your... no, I
1: moved to Nashville in '69. Before I, all that, when I played with the Stamps Quartet.
0: Okay, so that started, and you moved here to be a session player. No,
1: I moved here to play with the Stamps Quartet, but then I thought I might try to get on sessions. Like but that I, was your goal. Yes, but I wasn't really good enough. I played on records. I played on a lot of records.
0: So you must have have you must have like a vibe like that people can hear. Well,
1: yeah, you know I. I used to tell um, Emory Gordy, who played bass with Amy Lou, I said, man, I just don't feel like I'm worthy of this job. And he said, hey, man, Amy Lou hired you because she likes the way you play. Just get over it and <laughs> yeah. be who you are that she likes because you came from where you came from and the way you play. Just don't analyze it too much. Just and so
0: you.
1: And I played on records, but I couldn't play. On sessions like when I hire players to play on records, if they choke on me, I probably won't hire them again for a long time. Mm -hmm. They got to be able to turn on a dime. And you know, the players, the players I use are usually they're called double scale players. They get double what a normal player would get because they are that good. You know, you can just say, do a Bonnie Raitt thing. They can do that. Do a Fleetwood Mac thing. Do a Hank Sr. Do Waylon, and they can go anywhere you want to go. Quickly. On a dime. Quickly, yes.
0: I think it's so interesting, though, because, like, you were almost disappointed that you weren't, as you said, good enough to be a session player, but then you go on to become one of the most successful producers of all time. You've sold over 100 million albums. You've been on, been a part of 100 million albums. Right. How many songs does I have this written down? like...
1: A uh, hundred number one, hundred
0: number one songs, over a hundred million albums, and you've been in this business now for forty years. You've run MCA labels. You've produced everyone from. Okay, I'm going to read this list: Reba, Vince Gill, George Strait, Brooks and Dunn, Trisha Yearwood, Rodney Crowell,
1: Linona, Lionel Richie,
0: Lionel Richie. Now, Cindy Lauper, and also you did the Tus. How do you say that? Tus- Tus- Tuskegee Tuskegee with album with, with uh, Lionel Richie that had duets with Blake Shelton, Jason Aldean, Darius Rucker, Tim McGraw, and it was like. One of the highest-grossing albums of 2012. So you w- wanted to be a session player, but then you just blew the top off of it and became like this mogul.
1: Well, you know, it's sort of like what you're doing right now. You know, when I first met you, you were a singer, and then then you and Jennifer came over and we cut those demos.
0: And Jen and I were in a They're band song together, songwriters, yep. and then stealing angels and amazing race together. Right, and listing. then we
1: tried to do the the thing that.
0: Oh, that is a side note. Tony produced two songs on me right. and Jennifer Wayne. And, and it was you know, an amazing experience,
1: and I invested my own money in it because it was. Incredible. It was no, it was a challenge. You know, I was going. I got to find a way to make these girls have a hit record. As it turned out, it
0: that led to record. You no, know, that Jen's in, yeah, now. that's
1: right. You know, With but Runway you know, bottom June. line is, it, it got me knowing you on a different level than I did before. I was mm-hmm. only like superficially kind of, you know. Uh, business associates kind of thing. And I found out that your heart was really there and yours, Jen was too. And I wanted to be a part of that. So I, I wasn't that busy. So I just invested my time in doing that. And I love what we did.
0: I love this, you know, and,
1: and I was thinking, uh, that that was at that point in my life was really good for my, um, for my inspiring me to, say i still have more to say you know because it's such a such a young man's world right now and uh and i know most of my career was from 89 to 97 but still i have a have i still have things i want to say and you guys were part of me doing that like going out on blind faith and cutting this stuff and shopping it around when i was not working for a record label and
0: and then it, was it led good. to a record deal. Yeah, it
1: sure did. And you know, it's good for me. Look at you. I mean, and then you decided that you want to do this now. You're like me. I started out to be a piano player <laughs> and ended up being a record executive and eventually a producer. And you started out being a singer. And then you became a singer-songwriter. And now you're a, a personality doing a podcast. And we're, we have a parallel kind of career. I've always career.
0: really... Yeah related to you because you're very open to just letting things happen and you're very open to I think just trusting your talent like you you've let your talent lead the way
1: yes well you know uh have you seen the Dave Grohl, the that's Foo Fighters? I talked
0: to you about that. I yes. saw you. It's, uh, Sonic. Sonic
1: Highways, yeah.
0: So Sonic Highway came out, and that's one of the coolest series that's come out. Dave Grohl did it. Was it on HBO?
1: HBO. It was it like an HBO special? A series of ten cities. Every and you scene.
0: were the, the prime person they talked no. to and interviewed on Dave's special in Nashville.
1: Right. You know, I was wondering how I got on that <laughs> show, and I thought he would ask me like two questions. No, you were all over we, it. We were talked a lot, and then at the end he said... I hear you hate this, but I'm going to ask you this anyway. And I said, you're going to ask me an Elvis story. He said, I sure am. I said, go ahead, because that seems to define my career anyway.
0: Well, you have to understand, to be in Elvis' band is crazy that well, you did that.
1: Well, you know, the thing about that, when I took that job, I was more excited about playing with Ronnie Tutt and James Burton and Jerry Sheff and those musicians. To be able to play at that caliber... Even though Elvis was a celebrity, I knew that was a good gig, but to be able to play in that band was like a big deal for me. Like, I'm good enough.
0: <laughs> like you, like you had this validation. Like you yeah, that's right. It
1: validated that I, I could actually, if I applied myself, there was nothing I couldn't do.
0: You know, I relate to in that way. I think getting a record deal for me with my first band, Stealing Angels, validated that. Like we didn't ever have success really, but. Okay, I can do this. Yeah,
1: but you you know, you made an impact, and that's the bottom line. You always want to make, whatever you do, make some sort of impact. You know, you can make a big impact, or you can make a small impact. The bottom line is if you make, if you get uh, something happening, you're making an impact, you've done something. Yeah. You know, um, I've always heard the saying that if you have a number one record, you have an experience. If you have an audience, you have a career. And that's like the Stones and... Uh, Bonnie Raitt, The Beatles, or Paul McCartney, they don't have hits anymore, but they have an audience. Mm-hmm. But they had so many hits in the beginning, they made an impact. Now, they're so famous, they don't need hits anymore.
0: People just want to be a part of the experience.
1: They, yeah, they just have an experience. of People go out and see them play, and they play all the hits, of course. They have to. But then they play new music, which people don't quite... Ever accept, you know? I've just so just started want the old
0: familiar. That's right.
1: I'm the same way. If I go see uh, Bonnie Raitt, I want her to do "I Can't Make You Love Me." And if she
0: doesn't, it would
1: crush you. Oh, absolutely! No, yeah. piss me off, uh, not you're, crush you're me. Not that. <laughs> piss me off. <laughs> I went and saw Van Morrison one time at the Ryman Auditorium. Tickets were 250 bucks piece about four a thousand dollars. He didn't do one song I'd ever heard, and you know what? I wasn't so bummed out because I just really wanted to see Van Morrison before he stopped playing. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of upset he didn't play Brown Eyed Girl or anything, the big hits, but just to see him on stage and see what an arrogant bastard he was. Was he? Yes. <laughs>
0: Did you like that about him?
1: Well, kind of, you know, like, <laughs> you know the thing about arrogance, uh, Prince and all big stars, have a, they have a touch of arrogance, but it, they use it. They can use it in a bad way or they can use it in a good way.
0: So, break that down.
1: Uh, well, you know, like, a prince was kind of untouchable, unreachable.
0: hmm
1: No one uh, never really quite knew him. That's kind of cool, kind of you same know? with
0: Michael Jackson, too. Same with Michael
1: Jackson, but Michael had more friends. You know, he had Oprah, and he mm-hmm. had um, Lionel Richie was a good friend of his, he said, and um, Quincy Jones. Elvis didn't really have any friends outside of his inner circle.
0: He, he really didn't?
1: Not really. He sort of the inner circle kept him isolated.
0: Unintentionally. intentionally?
1: Intentionally. And I think that's what why really, do you think that is. Cuz they were jealous of anybody getting close to him. They it,
0: wanted to be his everything.
1: Yes. And that's the problem with most big stars. The inner circle can isolate them. That's what happened to Michael Jackson too, I think. You know, Michael and Elvis maybe could still be here and Whitney yeah, had their circle had not been so tight, people could have got to them and maybe saved their lives. Who knows?
0: That's interesting. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, you're right. So the inner circle can really like.
1: Well, they can they isolate the person to the point where, if if the inner circle doesn't have the help that person needs, uh, in the case of Michael and and Elvis, they keep that one individual that could have helped that person. Like with Elvis, you know, he was really, he, he didn't drink.
0: He didn't?
1: No. Not at all? At, not at all, no. You would
0: think, I thought he had a lot of like, so drugs? He, he just drugs? did
1: prescription drugs. Really? Not illegal drugs, you know, and. and like pain pills? Pain medicine, um, you know, things that would calm him down, make him go to sleep. Same with Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm.
0: Just because you probably had so much stress and anxiety.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it's like if Elvis had gotten healthy, he was really heavy at the end, you know, he, he could still be around maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know. But, you know, everything, fate is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it was meant for Elvis to go away when he did, for Miller Monroe to go away when she did. Uh, and, you know, the the impact that people like Michael and Prince and Elvis made on the world— it's all anybody ever wanted to do, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Elvis...
0: Like, they made their mark.
1: Right. And, you know, and Elvis probably wanted to do what he ended up doing, but maybe he didn't even realize he did it, you know?
0: Because he was just in the middle of doing and,
1: it. Right. And he never really got a chance to have conversations with people like yourself and and do an interview like this, you know? I mean, yeah. interviews you see of Elvis were always like press conferences. They were kind of staged. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of feel sorry for people like that. That's kind of weird to say, because everybody <laughs> wants to be Elvis or Michael Jackson, but right. bottom line is it really comes with a lot of uh, uh, baggage. You there's know. a
0: lot to yes, it.
1: a lot to it, yeah.
0: The greatness of it is a great, but then there's also that other side.
1: You know, and I think that's what's cool about what you're doing, because you, I think, like myself, intended to do one thing, and. Now you're going through another part of your life, but it's still in the creative sense. Mm-hmm. So you're really doing what you set out to do, just in a different part of it. You know? Well,
0: and I think, too, that's interesting, because sometimes when you get started, you don't even know what options are out there. Or what, like, I didn't even know about hosting. You probably didn't even think of being a producer or running a label no,
1: when
0: I, no, you were growing up in your little never,
1: town. Never in a million years would I have dreamed I would run a label or produce records like I did. Um... But, you know, I kind of live creatively through producing, you know, like I hire a musician because I know how he plays, what kind of style he has. So actually, I'm not playing, but I'm kind of like living through them, you know, when I hire them.
0: So was it, this is going to be like a weird question because you said like everyone wants to be Elvis, but yet he had his own set of problems. Problems, yeah. A lot of people would want to be you, but like, are you sitting there thinking like, well, this isn't what I wanted to do. I want to be playing.
1: <laughs> no, you know, I'd never really, people ask me that all the time. Do you miss playing? I said, no, because in a sense, I feel like I'm playing when I hire people to play for me on you're records. you're
0: getting to play what you want, yes. when you and,
1: hear. And I can also like, because I'm a musician, I can guide a player, whether it be a guitar player or a keyboard player or a drummer. I can guide them through what I want them to play because I'm a musician. I can describe, or you can uh, even
0: go play it for them if you need uh, to. Right,
1: you know. In fact, on Cindy Lauper's record, uh, I don't play anymore. But on the Willie Nelson cut "Nightlife," I was showing Steve Nathan, the keyboard player, what I wanted him to play, and Cindy said, "Well, you just play that." And I said, "I don't play anymore." She said, "You are now." <laughs> so, so I ended up playing on that cut, and it was a thrill. It scary, yeah. it was scary, but still a thrill <clears throat> because it was a simple part and I could do it and I did it. And I kind of thought, if I can get my piano Jones out three minutes at a time, that's so cool. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, did you always know you were destined for greatness?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. But what I don't, think, I don't think, I don't think about it, that. I'm not great, I'm but just what, lucky.
0: Okay, what okay, maybe you didn't realize it was greatness you were seeking, but what was that thing inside of you that made you keep walking forward and climbing, and, like, what were you looking for?
1: I was just looking forward to make, to make a statement. You know, there's nothing, I mean, having hit records that sell six million, like Wynonna's first record or George Strait's first record I did.
0: And you did how many George Strait albums? Nineteen. Did nineteen? Yes, George twenty State years albums. with him.
1: Yes, thirty. He had sixty number ones. I did thirty-seven of them. Holy cow! <laughs> but you know, it's like um, you know what the the definition of lucky is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. You prepare yourself for that opportunity, and it, then it presents itself, and you can you can do it
0: because you are
1: ready. You are ready, and you step into it, and you actually pull it off. That's what happened to me, and. uh I just wanted to be, you know, people tell me they love a record that never made it up the charts. They say, that's my favorite record. That makes me feel really good because that's what you want is validation that mm-hmm. that you did something that is appreciated. That's really what it is. Of course, being appreciated with big hit records is also another <laughs> level of appreciation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where do you think that drive came from?
1: Being so poor, you know, I remember going to school. Uh, I could never get a girl to look at me because I was dressed so bad and so poor. And I was always loved the cheerleaders, but they would never look at me twice. <laughs> and so I always wanted to, to be admired by people that were better off than me, better looking than me. You know, I just wanted to be accepted with people that I admired Admired, yeah whether they be good looking uh wealthy uh talented whatever and that's that's a drive you know you just want to be that person and if you look at a lot of uh people from ray charles to whitney to elvis uh they all start that way you know it's like they just sort of like have a dream and you achieve your dream you know you never quit dreaming
0: What does it feel like when you achieve a dream? Like, what does it feel like when your album that you produce sells a million, over a million albums, produces number one hits? Like, what what does it feel like when you're running a label that's hugely successful? Like, how does that feel when your hard work really pays off?
1: Well, let me tell you, I've told somebody this many times. It's more fun trying to make it than trying to sustain it once you've made it. Because, you know, when you're trying to make it and you finally have that first gold album or that first number one record, the feeling is like, as MasterCard would say, priceless. Yeah. (laughs) It's exhilarating, you know. It's just like, oh, my God, this is really happening. And it's not about money. In the beginning, it was never about money. It was just about validation. And then once you start making money... Like,
0: this is nice.
1: Yeah, you go, this is kind of cool, you know. you, You can... Uh, um, your, lit, your lifestyle gets up, goes up, better house, better car, better clothes.
0: Which, by the way, you have fabulous style.
1: Oh, <laughs> thank you so you much. Always well, are you always so too. so fashionable. That's why we're such friends. We both are so cool. <laughs> we're, we are. We're so cool. <laughs> uh, but, you yeah. know, it, it's like, it's just so fun to have success. I remember the first record I did on George Strait was Pure Country.
0: Oh, my gosh. I love that movie.
1: And up to that point, you know, he's...
0: Yeah, All but it, was, wasn't a, it wasn't
1: a successful movie at the theaters, but in cable, it was really big. It was, like, yeah. huge. And those but,
0: songs.
1: You know, up to that point, he had sold a million records. And the first record I get to do is that one, and it sold six million records. It changed like, his life and changed my life.
0: That album was yeah. huge.
1: It was really huge, yes. And it was, it was such a, I mean, to be able to work with a superstar like that, and that happened, you go, oh, my God. Maybe I'm better than I think I am. I don't so, was that know. the
0: first taste of really big success for you? Yes, yes. George was your first. Yeah, the first. Was that his real first taste of big success? Too? No,
1: he'd had platinum records before then. Okay. But this was the first six million selling album. That's a big. Deal. I mean, that's a big record for him, and it was bigger, bigger than the movie. But the movie was part of the success. It made it made was George it go from being a star to being a superstar. Yeah. You know? It made mm-hmm. him bigger than life because he's kind of like. In the, in the Elvis category, like Elvis made movies, he, he wasn't a great movie star, but it made him bigger as an artist. He just became a bigger celebrity.
0: And that movie was perfect for him.
1: Yeah, you know he never kissed the girl. Did you notice that? He never kissed the girl. No, he never did. Not
0: one of them. Because he had the one. The, I think the maybe crazy on the maybe,
1: the maybe on the cheek, but never in the mouth. Really? No, you know. Why was that? Maybe Norma, his wife,
0: was not into it. Yeah, and they've been married a long time, right?
1: They sure have. They were child, They were high school sweethearts.
0: How did they make it work all this time?
1: She's always there. Whenever I've made a record, she was always there for every record. She's always there on concerts, uh, at concerts, and they're just like inseparable. They're, they're just partners. A, yeah, and they're so cute together. Really? She's pretty, and he's handsome. So,
0: what is George like as a person? Because I'm from Texas, so uh, he's like King Texas. He
1: is like <laughs> he's the most normal. Star there is you know he's he doesn't have that ego like a lot of stars have he's got confidence, but no ego he's a real cowboy he's not a
0: he's not faking it
1: no all hat, no cattle <laughs> <laughs> he's um he's he's a real he's a real guy, and I really have loved being able to work with him for so long and then uh I'm no longer working with him, but I got to do the the big records with him, so that's good
0: yeah you're in the heyday so then you went on to work with Reba. You produced her.
1: Yeah, my first record, you know, my first album with Reba had the song "Fancy" on it. Oh, you did
0: "Fancy." I did "Fancy," Stop it. and yes, Stop and you it. know, and Fine. it's wait, you did "Fancy." The first album. Rumor it? has
1: it, you know, we cut that song, and Reba said, "I want to cut this song, Fancy. Oh my god! And I said, "I love that song." And but so, what a song! I know, and what so a statement song. We we cut that song, and I, and I told. Was uh, that
0: risky for that day and age?
1: Yes, because I didn't know the song was about a prostitute. <laughs> I just thought it was about a girl moving up town, you know? And so we cut the song and I told Bruce Hinton I said, We cut say, fancy last Bruce night. At that time. Bruce was the president of
0: So he was her record label president.
1: I was I was just VP of A and R at that time. And I said, We cut fancy and it's really great. He says, I hope it's not a, gonna be a single. I said, I think it's a smash. He said, Do you know what that song is about? I said, Yeah, it's about a girl <laughs> moving up moving uptown. He said, That's about a prostitute. I said, I never even knew that. <laughs> I just love the song, and I thought that her version was even better than Bobby Gentry's version.
0: Not who sang it originally. That's
1: who, yeah, she had the song "Ode oh, to Billy Joe," and she had "Fancy," and uh, I just thought, you know, we copied the record f- for the most part, and uh, the original record, but I think it's better, and it's been to this day.
0: How many songs? How many? Even songs though, even show? though it's
1: not a number one record for her, it's, it's her biggest hit, I think, ever.
0: Fancy didn't go number
1: one? No, it was like top ten.
0: Wow. How many records did that sell? Or how many albums? Oh, maybe two
1: million, three million. Wow.
0: What other Reba songs did you do?
1: I did um, uh, The Greatest Man I Never Knew. Oh. Yeah.
0: That song. She just told stories.
1: Oh, she sure did, yeah. And And
0: real stories. Was that that about her dad?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe it was. She never said. You know, at that point, I did... For My Broken Heart, because that record right after the plane crash.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, that was pretty hard for her to do but that what record. What happened in the plane crash? Well, her band, they were playing no. at a private party. I remember and, this. And she didn't fly back on that plane. The band took the private plane and flew home and hit a mountain and killed all her band members.
0: Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, that is like... That's traumatic.
1: Yeah, that's really traumatic. And, you know, that song, uh, there's a song on that album It's called uh, If I Had Only Known. And it's the last song on the album and it was like one take because if you listen to the song real close, she is sobbing at the end of it. It's a song about if I'd only known this would have been the last time I would have seen you, I would have said this or said that. And... um, but that was a great album, too, For My Broken Heart. was a great song.
0: What was working with Vince Gill like?
1: Oh, it was awesome. You know, he was in the Cherry Bombs. Oh, yeah. And so when, I, when the Cherry Bombs finished touring, and then he was with Pure Prairie League most of the time, but when he wasn't touring with them, he played with the Cherry Bombs. I got to know him really well. And so uh, when I started working for RCA... I told him, I said, you should move to Nashville and become a country artist. So you're the
0: reason he became a country yeah, artist? Yeah,
1: he, so he moved here, and I signed him to RCA, but I didn't produce him.
0: You signed him. So you I gave him. him his start.
1: No, I gave him his start as a country artist. Did you
0: run MCA and RCA?
1: No, no. I just worked at RCA. You worked at RCA and But RCA NCAA. gave me my claim to fame as a A&R guy because so I signed Alabama.
0: You <laughs> A&R at RCA. You signed, okay, tell me who you signed. You signed Alabama, yeah. Vince Gill.
1: And that's really all I did at RCA.
0: Who did you sign at MCA?
1: MCA signed um, Lyle Lovett, Steve Earle, the Mavericks, Trisha Yearwood, Patty Loveless, uh, Shelly Wright, Tracy Bird, Mark Chestnut, uh, produced Wynonna's first record for MCA after the judge broke up.
0: Tony, you are responsible for the start of all of those people's career. I know you're not gonna take credit for it right now because you're gonna say it was a team and it was all that stuff. But like, you gave those people their first you, break.
1: Well, they gave me, you know, signing Trisha Yearwood. I went to see her at Trisha a... Trisha
0: Yearwood. I went to see
1: her at Douglas oh, Douglas Corner. I can't
0: handle this.
1: <laughs> I went to see her at Douglas Corner, and every demo that I would get that a girl sang, it was Trisha. She
0: was a demo singer.
1: Yeah, she was a demo singer. And so and so, I was there with the RCA A and R person and Warner Brothers A and R person. And so uh, she's saying she's in love with the boy. And I said, I'll give you a record deal if you can have that song. She said, I've got that song. So I signed her. That was her first single. Tony. And she opened up for Garth Brooks. And so that was, I didn't produce her. Garth Fundus produced her. But uh, let's go back to Vince Gill real quick. Yeah. So after Vince was at MCA, he was produced by Richard Landis and by Emory Gordy Jr. And then I moved to. After RCA, I moved to MCA. And, and then, you ran the whole label
0: there.
1: Yeah, but it took me 20 years before I did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I found out that Vince wanted to leave RCA. And so because we had a relationship with the Cherry Bombs, I said, won't you come to MCA and I'll produce you? Because by then I had produced a few things and I was becoming a producer, so he let me do that. And the first thing we cut was when I called your name. No. Yes. I
0: love that song.
1: So and Stop it. and so that, was that big, the first song, first the song we cut was when I called your name. So y'all had magic from the start, <laughs> and you know, and then we had like, I mean, I cut still. I still believe in you. Oh no. go rest high. You all me? those big songs, Tony. And so you know, wow. our our career is kind of like
0: I can't believe all the stuff you've done. Like I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I'm like worthy to sit next to you. Oh,
1: you're so silly. <laughs> you're so silly.
0: Can you believe all the stuff you know like. Done?
1: Uh, Two years from now, you'll be on Entertainment Tonight <laughs> or E News, and I'll be going. I knew her when she was just a songwriter. Whatever. And... <laughs> but Tony,
0: can you believe the legacy? You are a living legend. Like, can you believe what you have created?
1: I can't Do believe. Do you think about it? I can't believe how blessed I have been, and I think it's because I was always sincere about. It. I never took it for granted ever. You didn't. Never for Why granted not? because I I just know how hard it is. To achieve things in this town, you know, I remember when I wanted to produce at RCA, I couldn't produce because they said, you've never had a, you don't have a track record. And I said, how do you get a track record if you don't get an opportunity? (laughs) And so Nora Wilson let me co-produce my first number one song with Steve Warner at RCA. And that was my first opportunity. Uh, I think it was called, um, it's not what I did, but what I didn't do.
0: Okay. I love that you have And some, some fools and,
1: and some fools never learn. Oh yeah. But, yeah.
0: How great that you have so many hits that it's hard to remember all the hits. <laughs> that's a good sign. But
1: you know, that's so I got the opportunity and then I just kept you delivering know,
0: when you got Yeah,
1: delivering and co producing was the thing. I had to co produce before I could produce by myself. And I knew that, you know. Jimmy Bowen, when he hired me to MCA, he let me co produce Jimmy Buffett. How was that? That was awesome. Wow. What and, songs did you do with Jimmy Buffett? I did two albums with Jimmy. I did a Riddles in the Sand and Last Mango in Paris. Did he have any
0: big hits
1: on this? <laughs> no, he did not. But they <laughs> both, you know, hes always sells a million records. And then we had a box set that we did with Buffett that sold like four or five million. Uh, but that became a great uh, relationship as well, Jimmy Buffett did. What's he like? He's the coolest. He's Is he the coolest.
0: like Island Man? Yes, he's like, <laughs> he's just like his,
1: he's like his uh, image.
0: He's, he lives up to his brand.
1: He lives up to it. And he's like the coolest. He's never, ever, he's always your friend. You know, once you get to know him, he's always there. So
0: he's humble, like
1: he's like. Uh, well, not humble. He's, <laughs> he's cool, arrogant. He's yeah. arrogant, but he, you know.
0: But once he like appreciates you, he always appreciates you. Oh him.
1: yeah. He's not like, he doesn't like, a, he's not a fair weather friend that blows you off.
0: That's awesome. I'm
1: doing a book right now, and so I, he's part Let's... of my he's part of my book.
0: I want to talk about your book. Okay, tell me about your book because hey, it's right here. Let's just do a little Elvis straight to Jesus. Yes,
1: I was. It's I wanted an to do incredible
0: picture a... on the front too. By the way, of you is what that picture is awesome of you. I thought
1: they said horrible. No,
0: incredible.
1: <laughs> so anyway, the the the, the thing I, I was going to do a coffee table book of my life, and Harper Collins picked up the idea, and they thought a good title would be. Nashville through Tony's eyes. I said no, that's silly. <laughs> it needs to be a title that would make people pick up the book and say what in the hell is this? Yeah. And so I thought, you know, my life started in the church, ended up going through Elvis and then through country music with Amy Lou and Roseanne Cash and Rodney Crowell, and then eventually through the record business. So I started taking people uh from each part of a my life like JD Sumner and the Oak Ridge Boys and Jerry Bradley and Jimmy Bowen and so forth, Joe Galani. So I had to give it a title and I thought Elvis Straight to Jesus would be a great title. Yeah. If it'd been chronological it would been Jesus <laughs> Elvis to Straight because Straight became later on. But I thought Elvis Straight to Jesus
0: has a nice ring to it. Has
1: a nice ring to it. And then, you know, uh everybody that I've produced Every record person i worked with, executive, Jerry Bradley, Joe Galani, Tim Dubois, Jimmy Bowen, Bruce Hinton, Scott Borchetta, they're all in the book, too, because they played important roles. Uh, People like Don Wise, who let me be his uh, mentor, I mean, protege on the uh, Rhythm, Country, and Blues, he's in the book because we've remained friends to this day, and he's cool, he produced Bonnie Raitt's two big albums. He oh, wow. does the Rolling Stones right now.
0: Wow, he's producing the Rolling Stones? He has
1: for the last three records. Well, all right. And then Bernie Taupin, who Elton John was the person who I wanted to be most of all if I was Elton a piano John? player. Yes. Oh, because he's so So good. Bernie Taupin and I became friends because Bernie came to town writing some country songs, which Lee and Womack ended up cutting one with Willie, I think. But we became friends. He's in the book because he introduced me to Elton. You know Elton? No, I just met him with Bernie. How was that? It was I was like peeing down my pants, you know. <laughs> was again. that like
0: the one, the, the celebrity? Yes. That really, because I mean, obviously you've been yes. a Well, you know,
1: I've, I've, I never met Prince. I never met Michael Jackson. I would have loved to have met those people. I've never met Celine Dion. I'd love to meet her.
0: Love Celine Dion.
1: Me too. So I met Elton and he only saw two people when he was in Nashville about three years ago backstage. Brenda Lee. And me, but I was only me because I was with Bernie Toppin at the concert and Bernie took me back to meet him and so what'd I just, you say to Elton? I just blabbered, you know, just like <laughs> stuttered and made a fool of myself. Was he nice? Oh yeah. Real sweet. Oh man. A so queen.
0: She, he is. Well, he's so fantastic. Did he have, not he, did all these pictures in this book, did you have, are they professional pictures? Are they oh, well, actually. How the, do you have all these pictures?
1: Uh, Have you seen my website?
0: Yes, it's so well done. People
1: that did my website are doing the book. So they're taking the pictures.
0: But were you collecting these pictures as you went?
1: No, you know, through the years, I've got pictures on tour. I've got pictures through the years of number one parties, gold album parties, CMA parties, you know, different things with different celebrities. So these pictures are all going to be in there like chronological as I went through my life. And then I've got, individual people who were important, like J.D. Sumner's nephew, because J.D. passed away. Donnie Sumner represents the J.D. part of my life. William Lee Golden represents the Oak Ridge par- part of my life. Then I'm gonna have Lisa Marie Presley being there for the Elvis part of my life. Are you friends with Lisa Marie? Yeah, we're good friends. Yes. That's awesome. She lives here in Nashville, by the way. Nice. And uh, and then I got, you know, Amy Lou, Rodney Crowell, Roseanne Cash, the people I played with, and then every record executive, Jerry Bradley, Joe Galani, Bruce Hinton, Tim Dubois, Jimmy Bowen, Scott Borchetta. They're all in there too, representing different facets of my life. Because I fired Scott Borchetta. Oh my
0: gosh! And then and he then he, a, he opened
1: Big Machine and stuck it up my ass, so as I say. So you firing him was the best thing. That's that right. I told here. him I said, man, that you should thank me for firing <laughs> you because you stuck it up my butt. You know. What did he say? He just sort of nodded his head like, oh well. <laughs> Yeah, he's, like, worth about $50 million now, you know. Yeah. Oh but anyway, God. you know. I, a, those
0: stories are hilarious. Well, like, you know. I fired Scott Morchetta, and now he's Yeah, and I'm in
1: all, the in the, by each person, they're all sitting in this same chair that I'm in on the cover. And I'll show you some of the pictures before we leave today. Okay. But uh, they're all sitting in the chair, and I'm going to write a little paragraph about each person, what they contributed. Like, Donnie Sumner is the one that hired me to play in voice, which got me the job with Elvis. And, uh, and then I'm gonna have a story about Scott Borchetta, about what happened there and and Jimmy Bowen and Joe Galani. And, and uh, each, each person will have a story. Amy Lou Harris, when I went uh, audition for her, you know. Uh, so it'll I'm, be
0: from their perspective.
1: It'll be for me telling why they're in this book. Okay. And like Bernie Toppin, it'll be why he's in the book because Elton was my hero and we became friends and remain friends. And then when Elton came to town, I said, You got to introduce me to Elton John. He said, I will do that if you will take me and my wife to see Vince Skill and the Time Jumpers at Third and Lindsley. I said, You got a deal. Oh, my God. I love so it. He, he took me backstage to meet Elton, and then we went to the Time Jumpers the next night at Third and Lindsley. So, you know, you find out that what everybody is everybody's sort of the same, you know, no matter some people are so. Successful, that they become arrogant and unattainable, unaccessible. But the people that I love are the ones that are so successful that are still accessible and are normal people. And I love that. Like Reba's that way. Vince is that way. George is that way.
0: You are that way.
1: I'm not as great as they are. Yes. Lionel, oh, wow. Lionel Richie is that way. You know, he's such a cool guy. He
0: seems cool.
1: He is just cool. I felt like we were brothers, you know.
0: Was that cool, making that album with him? Oh, it was
1: awesome. It what was, was just, he like? What was that
0: experience like? It was
1: like living a dream, you know. I mean, you start, we're doing duets of all the hits. With, with all co- these country, artists. country acts. Right, you know, and I was thinking, well, what, how good can this be? But it ended up being the thing that kind of like, propelled his career back into gear again. You know, that record was so successful. And I started noticing how great those songs were. I mean, I started studying all night long how it's structured in the layout of the song and Stuck On You and Sail On. Man, it was just awesome. I just, I loved being around such great talent like that. You know, if you can hang out with those kind of people, then... You're doing okay. Then
0: you must be one of those kind of people.
1: No, you know, just the fact that you can do that and feel comfortable makes you realize, hey, you know, I'm doing something right, so.
0: I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about, can I hold this? Yes. I'm holding a Grammy. (laughs) I'm holding Tony Brown's Grammy.
1: 2008.
0: Best country album for Troubadour.
1: 2008, yes. You know, uh, everybody thought that George had won, lot, had won lots of Grammys, but he'd been nominated but never won a Grammy. Why? And 2008, we cut out an album called Troubadour, which is one of my favorite records I ever did with George. We won the Grammy. We won the CMA Album of the Year, CMA Single of the Year with Troubadour, and it was a big, big album for George.
0: How did that... Oh, that felt won. so!
1: Oh, it felt so cool, you for know. The best for I,
0: producer for the best country album, Tony—that's the top of the top.
1: Well, you know, I produce like twenty things. Like, you know, you only get a Grammy if you're a producer of a genre, like best album for R and B or best country album, best jazz album, best Americana record. If you produce an album that wins a Grammy, then the producer gets a Grammy. I've produced lots of things like Vince Gill for best uh, male performance of a country single, like Go Rest High and Mm -hmm. I Still Believe in You. And then uh, over the years, uh, Shirley Caesar for gospel performance. So I've got lots of little plaques that say for your participation in Grammy award-winning single performance so
0: you produced the songs but you didn't get a grammy right
1: so you only get a grammy as a producer if you if the album category you're in like country album americana album and so that year george was up for album of the year country album of the year in the grammys and he won and everybody thought he had won lots of grammys but he hadn't elvis only won one grammy for his gospel album really the beatles never won a grammy no way no so, uh this was a big deal for George and for myself, you know. I just it was so cool and the fact that it was that album, because Troubadour is about uh, I was a young troubadour when I came into the when I rode into this town, I'll be an old troubadour when I'm gone. And so I got Vince Gill to sing harmony on that oh, without wow. telling George, because they had both just been inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so George always only uses his background singers on the road on his records. So I put Vince on there, not telling George, which is not a good thing to do normally. <laughs> but George called me and said, man, I love the way the background's turned out on Troubadour. Is that Vince's skill? I said, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I said, because, you know, you're both Troubadours. That's really special. You both have just been put in the Hall of Fame, and I just thought he's a great singer, and it just made sense to put him on there. What and and, moment. and George loved it, but... Uh, so, so that was a special yeah that's a special album
0: family, though. I mean that's like you have hit the top yeah of the I only top. got one but you know one well, I mean all right that's fine
1: <laughs> but I'd rather have won it for something like George you know who I put 20 years of my life into, into and that album kind of like was a, pi- that. was a pinnacle like summed up the career of he and I working together
0: how cool is that oh
1: it's so cool
0: and then you've won like ACM Producer of the Year many times.
1: Oh, uh, twice I think. But, but you've won a lot of awards. Yeah, but you know that's like, you know, you have the Golden Globes and the Oscars and the SAG Awards, and then in country music you have the CMAs, the ACMs, and then they have the now the A
0: the ACA ACAs and yeah, the CMT Awards, but that's and the CMTs. Videos.
1: But you know the CMAs are the Grammys mm-hmm. of of uh, country music. Of the country music awards and so to win the CMA album with this record and the Grammy with this record and the single with this record. at The CMAs was cool. The ACMs is a whole different kind of more fan voted awards than industry. The industry only votes for the Grammys and the CMAs. ACMs is industry plus fans. That's awesome. So I've won a couple of producers of the year, but you know, I was at one time I was producing so many records that it was hard not to get nominated and then all your friends in the business feel sorry for you and vote for you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Whatever. No one feels sorry for you, Tony Brown. I just like hearing your story laid out like this. It's kind of unbelievable to me all that you've accomplished. Do you sit around and think about that?
1: I sit around and think about it. And like I said before, I don't take it for granted. And I really appreciate it. And every day when I get up, you know, I thank God for how he's blessed me. And I never, ever... uh, forget how I got here. You know, a lot of my friends helped me. I mean, a lot of my friends, like the job with RCA, they got me into their business. After I quit playing as a musician, I told a friend of mine, David Briggs, who's in my book, he and I played with Elvis together. I said, David, I want to get in the record business. I want to be an A&R guy. And he said, I'll talk to Jerry Bradley. He really values my opinion and see if he'll uh, hire you. And he did. So, you know, your friends help, your friends help you. I help friends out myself. And that's what you do, you know. You, you give and, you know, people give to you and you give back. It's giving back is the whole deal. And when a songwriter thanks me for cutting a number one song, I say, thank you for giving me that song. You know, <laughs> really? it goes both ways. It's, it's thank you for the song. And he said, thank you for cutting it. And I so said, well, you know. So you're very grateful. Yeah, I'm very grateful. and. Lucky, lucky man.
0: So right now you just produced. We're about to have to wrap up. I could literally talk to you for like 14 hours. You have Uh so much to talk about. You just produced Cindy Lauper's new album. Yes. How was that?
1: It was awesome. She's a trip. She came to town and interviewed all the producers in town that were like Dan Huff, Byron Gallimore, Nathan Chapman, uh, Garth Fundus, um, Paul Worley, anybody that was producing right now. Because she wanted to cut kind of a covers record of forties fifties and sixties country songs
0: Cool.
1: the last record she'd done five years before was in memphis with all the people at Stax and all those kind of people a blues album mm-hmm. so she interviewed me and uh, and everybody else and i got the job and uh... i asked her why she picked me she said well i said don't tell me because i play with elvis she said well that's one of the reasons <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I'm so glad I got to do this record because, you know, when she grew up in Queens, those songs like Patsy Klein and Wanda Jackson were played on pop radio back in those days. There was not pop charts and country charts and jazz charts and AC charts. It was just pop charts. Okay. So in pop music, you'd have Johnny Mathis, Johnny Cash. You'd have Elvis. You'd have um, Patsy Klein.
0: So everybody was on
1: the same chart, chart, you know? And those were the songs she remembered hearing when she was growing up, and they were pop songs. And so uh, she said, I want want to cut these from the perspective of how I heard them in the beginning, not as country songs, but as songs that influenced me as a singer. In fact, you know, one of my favorite songs she picked was Skeeter Davis' The End of the World.
0: Nice.
1: Which is one of my favorite old country songs. And so... But she said, I didn't hear Skeeter Davis's version. I heard Herman's Hermits' version. And I remembered, oh, my God, they did cut that.
0: So this was just her favorite song that she grew up listening to that she covered.
1: Right. And so she covered End of the World because she heard Herman's Hermits sing it. Wow. And I said, well, that's one of my favorite songs by Skeeter Davis. And so we sort of listened to both versions and made our own version of it. And then Wanda Jackson, she did a song called Funnel of Love. I never really knew much about Wanda Jackson's music. Then we had Jewel come sing on Cowboy's Sweetheart. She yodeled on Cowboy's Sweetheart. Jewel
0: did? Jewel's so awesome. And then she
1: called the album Detour because it's a detour from her normal music, and Lou sang on that. She cut Nightlife with Willie. Oh,
0: cool.
1: Nelson. And then she uh, cut You're the Reason Our Kids Are Ugly with Finn Skill. <laughs> I love which was a song. Conway Twitty Loretta Lynn song. Yes. I'd never heard the song. I'd heard the title yes. all my life.
0: That's I love that.
1: And what happened on the record actually happened on the fly. She doesn't do any vocal, but the track vocal. That's it.
0: What What do you What do you mean?
1: She doesn't re-sing anything. That's it. So That's it. One take. One take. Yeah. Will
0: she do several takes or just no. one take?
1: No, we do several takes, and then once the take is the take.
0: So she won't like do any edits on any of the take
1: No, she won't go back and re-sing a line or re-sing a verse so she or, sings?
0: It until she finds one take that she likes, and then
1: that's it. That's it, yeah. When the band's playing everything right.
0: Oh, wait, she does it with the band, too?
1: No, we do it live, you know.
0: She recorded this album live.
1: Yes. So the first song we did was End of the World, wow. and, and when she finished singing it, I said, I'm so used to, like, singers. You do a track, and then the band leaves the room, and then the artist sings four or five more vocals, and then I comp together the best a final of all the vocals. And make
0: it. definitely... Today's age, artists don't do a one-take with the band playing no, their instruments they just once.
1: play, and they, they know they can fix it later.
0: Yeah, they need to go in and edit, they'll fix so it. So
1: when she finished the first End of That's the so- World, it was like, I said, so do you want to sing your vocals now or wait till next week when your voice is fresh? She said, I just sang it. I said, I know you just sang it. Uh, she said, was it bad? I said, no, it was awesome. She said, well, then it's, it's done. <laughs> And, I, and so when, cool. I, when I finished the album, I was going, I love this because I didn't have to do vocal comps, which yeah, take like... Forever. Yeah. A day a song to put vocals together.
0: That's so cool.
1: So she was so cool. And she was like uh, so on top of everything. You know, the band had to be on top of everything. She didn't want any slackers anywhere. And she brought Walt, Bill Whitman, her uh, engineer from the beginning. He did everything from... Girls just want to have fun through now. And he's British. And uh, it was great working with...
0: What a cool experience. Oh,
1: yeah, it was. like a whole different experience for me.
0: Man, you're like Outside of
1: my comfort zone. But I had to really step up and work. I couldn't, like, phone it in, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I don't think you ever phone it (laughs) in. No,
1: but, you know, I mean, sometimes it's it's straight. You just... You do the formula. You have a formula you do. You just, you know, you can do it again, and you can redo the vocals and this and that. But with her, it had to be like... On the in the moment, on the spot, I can't and wait it was to hear great. This
0: album. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap up. Okay, with leave your light. I like to ask everyone that I interview to leave inspiration, something that has inspired you, inspiration you live by, and how you would inspire the world with your light.
1: I just want to be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I love uh, that though. That's so true. I, I just want to be. You know, I'm. I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. I was raised in a religious family, but I, I'm a spiritual person and I want to be, uh, thought of as a person with compassion. Uh, that's funny, that's thoughtful and, um, maybe a little talented, a lot talented. but you know, but I really, I really want to be, uh, inspirational to people. And to be kind, you know, I really believe, and do unto others. The golden rule, really, to me, is a a thing to live by. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and you if you'll do blessed? that, I try that, but it doesn't always go that way with everyone. Hey,
0: there's always a bad yeah. apple. But look at how your life has been blessed from oh, living from that rule.
1: So great, and you know, it's so great to. To know that six years ago when you were working with Anastasia and Stealing Angels, I only knew you as a cute girl singer in a band. And then you were an intern at Universal South. For you? Yes. I
0: was so intimidated. I, this story is hilarious because I would walk by your office and I would like, shake because I'm like, well, that's Tony oh, that's like, You're so silly. I literally was so scared.
1: But it's, it's just so it's so fun to get to see your friends kind of have success you know I mean through the years Chuck Ainley who's now one of the greatest engineers in the world we both talk about how I was playing on demos and he was a second engineer at the sound lab and now he's like one of the five greatest engineers in the world and a producer he produces Miranda Lambert, Mark Knopfler, David Nell and our career is kind of Paralleled. We grew together. And so it's so fun to see your friends have success. And I kind of feel that I'm witnessing that with you right now.
0: Aw. Yeah, buddy. I mean That's that. That's the I mean nicest that. thing ever. Coming from you, that means a lot.
1: Well, then continue what you're doing. You're doing it right.
0: Well, and look. Look what you've done. You've left uh-huh. a huge mark on this world.
1: Well, you thank you. You've left
0: a massive mark You're so world.
1: kind. You're so kind. And I'm just a lucky man. Thank you so much for interviewing me. My pleasure. You're the best. Thank you. Caroline,
0: she's the queen of talking. Hey, what's on your mind? She's on the inside. She got the scoop on the ones to watch, on the ones to stop. No one can do it quite like Caroline. I hope that you guys loved hearing from Tony. He's such an inspiration, and he's so amazing. I love that man, and the things he, he has accomplished in his life is quite phenomenal. So, And y'all be looking for his book coming out soon. Next week is really exciting. I have my personal mentor, Victoria Shaw, joining me on the show. She is the reason that I got into songwriting She was my first publishing deal. I interned for her for years. She wrote so many songs for Garth Brooks, The River, She's Every Woman. She even opened up for Garth Brooks when he played that huge Central Park concert that was legendary. She wrote... Um, I love the way you love me for John Michael Montgomery, Ricky Martin and Christina Aguilera's song. Nobody wants to be lonely. And her artist who she's been working with Lacey Cavalier is also joining. And Lacey just got off tour with Chase Rice. She's incredible. She also was on Barney as a kid. Are you kidding me? And she's probably the most gorgeous person I've ever laid my eyes on in my life. Beautiful inside and outside. So y'all get excited for Victoria Shaw and Lacey Cavalier next week. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. Bye y'all.